Well, good morning, everyone. Sorry for the technical difficulty. It's just something to to deal with during this time of uh, really leveraging the technology that we have around us. First, I want to thank everyone who is joining us and for the encouragement and support that we have been experiencing. Today, we're going to be looking at a message that I hope will be encouraging for you. It is certainly a time when everyone in our society seems to be focusing on on Easter and wondering what that is all about. Easter has always, to me, been a very complicated holiday and tradition. From one point of view, it has a lot of conflicting symbols. When you think about how we have eggs and we have the opportunity and the tradition of coloring them and we think about placing them or hunting them or we have an Easter bunny and we think about family traditions of going in and chasing after Easter eggs and, and having family time together. For some of us, that also includes going to church. And right now, while we can't go to our natural assemblies, we can gather together and, and enjoy each other's fellowship and spirit while we gather together to hear God's word and gather together to think about what all this means. When I was a little boy, I remember watching the TV and remembering one of my favorite commercials of Easter would be about uh, this bunny and that this bunny would be clucking like a chicken. I don't know if any of you remember that, but it was the commercial for the Cadbury cream egg. And I always associated Easter with, with the arrival of candy, with the arrival of, of maybe even some coins that someone might put in, into a plastic egg or, or even you know the, the arrival of the mythic Easter bunny. As I've gotten older, and I think about those traditions, and as I've gotten older and experienced a few more things, I realize that those are the superficial things about Easter. It's important to be together with family, but the things that we've, we've created, the things that we experience during this time, uh, often distract us from what really this is about. And perhaps it has to do with the nature of our culture and our Christian culture. In his book, uh, Ben Witherington III wrote a book entitled What Have They Done With Jesus? It's a book about different uh, ideas, urban legends, so to speak, about Christianity. It's, it's, it's designed to address 
the misinformation that is often shared through popular media avenues like National Geographic or Discovery Channel or even sometimes the History Channel. Uh, how sometimes even our fiction is often trusted better than even the New Testament scriptures like in the Da Vinci Code. But in this book, he, he introduces the subject matter and says, why is it so easy for us to fall prey to misinformation? Here I have a small quote I want to read you uh, and one that I think will be perhaps helpful for you to think about. He says, in America, we live in a Jesus-haunted culture that is biblically illiterate. Jesus is a household name and yet only a distinct minority of Americans have studied an English translation of the original document that tells us about Jesus. In this sort of environment, almost anything, any wild theory about Jesus or his earliest followers can pass for knowledge with some audiences. When I read that, it really struck me that we live in a Jesus-haunted culture that is biblically illiterate. And it's true. We are Jesus-haunted. But we are also biblically illiterate at large. We have all sorts of festivals and feasts and holidays connected to Jesus. We have Christmas that has become more about the you know, purchasing power of a parent to bring gifts into the house and make sure that we go to Black Friday sales and all the while saying Merry Christmas. We have other times of the year like right now, Easter, where again, we are saturated with something that happened in the life and time of Jesus, but we're more focused on the commercial side as a, as a culture, as a society. Then when it comes down to it, we're more about chocolate bunnies and Cadbury cream eggs. We are Jesus haunted and we are biblically illiterate. And the, thing, the, and the thing is, today of all days, where on the Christian calendar it is Easter, when you follow the New Testament and you read throughout the New Testament scriptures, what you actually find is in fact that Christians celebrate the concept of Easter, which is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus that Christians celebrate that every first day of the week, every Sunday. You know, Christians who follow after a strong uh, biblical basis tend to use language like that, first day of the week. As a culture and society, I suppose that we think of the first day of the week as Monday because it's the first day of our work week. But because Jesus rose on Sunday, we actually 
celebrate and use the language of scripture, which calls that day first day of the week because it goes all the way back to creation. On the first day of the week, God created the heavens and the earth and said, let there be light. And it just so happens that on the first day of the week, if you read Matthew chapter 28 or read even Mark chapter 16, you read the gospel accounts, you read that when the followers of Jesus came to the grave, it was the first day of the week when they saw that the grave was empty. You see, the disciples, in particular the women, the the women disciples of Jesus, the followers of Jesus that had arrived, they were going to prepare the body of Jesus because Jesus had just been crucified. He had been crucified under the rulership of Pontius Pilate, under the influence of the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin and the high priest of Caiaphas and And the death and his burial were done so quickly that they they couldn't do all the traditional preparations for burial that they were accustomed to because Friday was slowly ending as as the sun was going down and the Sabbath was upon them and they weren't allowed to break the Sabbath and so they would not be allowed to prep the body. And so the first thing they could do was to get to the tomb as early as they could, which would have been the day following the Sabbath, which was the first day of the week, the day we call Sunday. And when they got there, the tomb was empty. When they got there, there was a resurrected Jesus. This is what Easter is supposed to celebrate if it's going to celebrate anything at all. But when we follow the New Testament pattern for worship, when we follow the New Testament for how we understand our identity as Christians, then Christians celebrate the resurrection of Jesus every first day of the week. So in many ways, we welcome the world to celebrate what we celebrate every week. And we're thankful for that. I'm thankful for that. But in many ways, we're still in a Jesus-haunted culture that is very much biblically illiterate. I'd like to take some time today to tell you about something that happened in Jerusalem. I would like to tell you a little bit about what happened to Jesus and why that matters for us today. For those of us that have a loose connection with Christianity, for those of us who who believe but don't know exactly why, for those of us that believe and could appreciate some good reminders, then I hope this lesson is for you today. The New Testament shows us four documents, four books that are designed to tell us about Jesus. That's it. The rest of the New Testament is often the the continuing actions of the followers of Jesus, that is the book of Acts, and even the story of the various congregations that need 
more information, more insight, more encouragement, a better way to apply the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in their life, to purify their teaching, to purify their morality, to give them direction on how to love each other as a community and to love their community to reach out with the gospel. And then you have the book Revelation, a series of symbolic oracles and visions that were really designed to help the early Christians get a handle on what happens next. How do we survive in a culture that is often antagonistic to Christians? And it seems like we're going to need some more of that encouragement in our time today. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John show us like a prism with various angles and perspectives, the same story, but with a different slant or different emphasis. Matthew, with its 28 chapters, brings us through the life and times of Jesus Christ with a very strong Jewish flavor, beginning with a genealogy, showing us his early confrontation with death, how Herod the Great tried to destroy any possibility of a rival king on the horizon. And then as he emerges as a teacher, Jesus of Nazareth begins to teach, begins to share, begins to demonstrate, and even his the way his teaching is, is chronicled in Matthew, some have noticed that there seems to be five significant speeches throughout Matthew, and perhaps it's supposed to line up with the way Deuteronomy has five significant speeches from Moses, and so Jesus perhaps is being portrayed as a new Moses, which is not an uncommon theme, especially when you look at the Gospel of John. But Mark, on the other hand, though brief, Though brief, it has for us a, a way to see Jesus as a doer of good deeds, as a miracle worker. And there are far more examples of Jesus doing things, healing people, doing significant deeds that made people understand that he was a teacher come from God, that he was and is the son of God. In fact, as the Gospel of Mark concludes, even in his death, a Roman centurion voices out truly that this was the Son of God. But it all boils down to how Mark portrays Jesus. What happens when you are confronted with the work of the kingdom of God? Will you change and will you demonstrate repentance as you reorient your world around Jesus and the kingdom of God. The gospel of Luke with its sequel, the book of Acts, is a continuing argument for the coming of Jesus, the spirit of God that is on him and how he reaches out to those that have often been forgotten and neglected or even dismissed. Whether you see it in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. How the epitome of 
religious teaching and minute traditional keeping was actually of no avail to when it comes to being spiritual and justified before God. But instead, you have the the publican, the tax collector, who by his profession and trade, he was often prone to abusing his neighbor. The tax collector was continually known for that temptation of abusing his neighbor. And yet in the parable in the gospel of Luke, you see how the neglected and disenfranchised are brought closer to the kingdom of God when they act in true faith and repentance. In other words, the argument of Luke and the book of Acts is that when the Spirit of God is working through his people, and in particular Jesus, good things are going to happen in your community. And often the pushback that Jesus got was not because he did good. It was because he taught against the traditions of those around him. And he made his case for his identity as being the son of God, which within itself was a claim to divinity. And this brings us to the gospel of John. Of all the gospel accounts, you find that in the gospel of John, you have the strongest case, the strongest outright in your face case that Jesus, though human, though experienced humanity like all of us, that Jesus was actually God in the flesh. The Genesis account is then reinterpreted in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, to show us that that you've heard this story before, that in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but John takes it and says, in the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And we begin to see that Jesus is that word. And he was there at the creation. And he was there creating everything because without him was nothing made that has been made. And later on in that prologue, you get the powerful argument and affirmation that and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. See, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John attest to a variety of angles of how we can understand Jesus of Nazareth and how that has an impact on what happened in Jerusalem. He was rejected as a teacher. He was rejected for his miracles. He was rejected for the implication of those teachings and his miracles and the claim that he is the son of God. And as a result, he was rejected and crucified. You see, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they chronicle much of his ministry. We estimate about three and a half years But what we end up seeing is while the bulk of that ministry is summarized, the Gospels are not true biographies in that sense. 
They do focus on all the connecting points that lead up to his rejection and his crucifixion. As the story unfolds, we see the Jews bring him over to Pontius Pilate. Historians know of Pontius Pilate. Inscriptions demonstrate that Pontius Pilate is a real historical figure. And this meeting of this backwater startup rabbi from Nazareth up near Galilee, now in Jerusalem, it's an unlikely story. It's an unlikely story in that, in the sense that it should never have happened. Someone as backwatered from Galilee or Nazareth as Jesus should never have had front and center seat with Pontius Pilate. But that's exactly what happened. And the New Testament is not the only witness to this. The, the, the Jewish historian Josephus, at least on two occasions, references that Pontius Pilate and Jesus were connected. When the, when the historian Josephus mentions how Jesus died, if the New Testament documents had been destroyed, you could get a sense of the events that led to the gospel itself. How Jesus was rejected and handed over by the Jewish leadership over to Pontius Pilate where he suffered the most cruel death of crucifixion and then was claimed to be alive by his followers. You see, when we read about what happened in Jerusalem. As Paul would say in Acts chapter 26, this did not happen in a corner. This did not happen in secret. In Acts chapter 26, Paul stands before King Herod Agrippa II, the great grandson of Herod the Great, the grandson of Herod, the one who tried to kill Jesus as a baby and the one that tried to be king and God. He, he is from this large family that is completely invested in Jewish history in Palestine, in Judea. And Paul himself says, you know that this did not happen in a corner. You know about these things. And because Paul's argument was based in history and based in current events, Herod himself knew Herod Agrippa II knew that there was an implication coming from Paul that this statement of Jesus being sent from God should imply that we should follow after Jesus. And he even said, would you try to persuade me in such a short time to become a Christian? And Paul said, not only you, but everyone in this courtroom right now would be like I am except for this, these bonds because Paul was in Roman custody at that time. But my point is, these things were not done in a corner. The, the Jewish Roman historian Josephus attests to that. In fact, when, when considered in the light of historical accuracy, it can be argued that the New Testament is highly accurate. 
is it, it is highly accurate and it's amazing in that sense because of all the things that it tries to account for. It's social and political and geographical arrangements and positioning of all of these intricate things that were in a constant state of flow. Some provinces were turned into imperial. Sometimes they were back to senatorial and you had to have the right political figure with the right political title. And when the New Testament touches on these things, it is not wrong. This for me gives me a sense of reliability when I read these stories. This gives me some sense that we can trust the New Testament and we can trust the Gospels and we can trust when we read about Jesus in the midst of Pilate and we can trust when we read about how the early church went about throughout the Roman world doing good deeds because they were doing it in the name of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Today, I want to encourage you to think about why does this matter? Number one, it matters for us to reconsider these things because it's important for us to know the foundations of our faith. It's important for us to, to constantly go over the story of Jesus, whether from Matthew's point of view, Mark's, Luke's, or John's, to see how they synthesize and, and give us a better and fuller picture of who Jesus is and why he was rejected and why the disciples believed he resurrected. They were all eyewitnesses. They all were willing to die and they did die for their faith in who Jesus is and what he, he did and how they claimed that he was resurrected from the dead. But also because the resurrection of Jesus has an implication that goes with it. When we celebrate today the idea that Jesus rose from the grave, that the grave is empty, it's not simply a statement of historical fact or even historical faith, but the fact that God moved in this world and he did something extraordinary. That in the resurrection of Jesus, there's a promise of life after this one. That in the resurrection of Jesus, that there's an, a promise that if we are in Christ, we will have reunion, not, which is, not just with God, but with our loved ones who are in Christ also. When we see the empty grave, when we see the empty tomb, when we know and believe that Jesus rose from the dead, what we have then is the promise that in our life right now, our lives can change from death to life. That Jesus' resurrection is not just the biological, but that it's a promise for spiritual death, burial, and resurrection for all of us. And that becomes the, the basis for the promise that comes with, with immersion or as it's traditionally called baptism. Paul would describe to the Roman Christians, he would remind them of what they did in Romans chapter 6, how they, they died to sin, they died to the old way of life, and that they were buried in water. And just as Christ rose from the dead, they too rise out of that watery grave. And just as Christ rose from the dead to walk in newness of life or to give glory to God, we too as, as now Christians come out of that water to live a life to give glory to God. See, the resurrection of Jesus 
is an everyday application for every Christian. The resurrection of Jesus is not just a one-day celebration out of the year. It is an actual dynamic part of being a Christian. It is what we go to to recenter. It is what we go to to give us a, the, the point of view and the vision of where we're supposed to go. It is the centerpiece. It is the hub of the wheel of our life. It tells us that Jesus died, resurrected first, and ascended to the Father. It gives new meaning then to the idea that he is the forerunner, that he's the one that went before us, and that if he went to the Father, we then too, following in his steps, following in his path, we too will resurrect when we die and be with him. Today, I don't know where you are, and I don't know where your faith is. But I hope that these few words will give you an invitation to think about, to think about what happened almost 2,000 years ago. I hope that this message will encourage you to rethink perhaps how you're applying the resurrection to your life and to your family. And even in your relationship at church, with your friends, or even right now while we're in communing, we're communing alone in our shelter in place. I hope you have a great Easter today. I hope you, you give Jesus one real shot to change your life. Just give him one genuine opportunity to change your life. I'll pray for you. God bless you. Until we meet again.